just Tom Tanner. <laughs> so, give me some lights. I want to see who's here. Just a little bit. There we go. Welcome back. Y'all doing okay? Awesome. Uh, huge, huge shout out to uh, all the people, the staff, uh, the task force, uh, all the people that worked so hard to, to make today happen. And, uh, you know, we didn't just, yeah. <clears throat> we didn't just unlock the doors. You know, there was a lot that had to happen, a lot that had to be done. Uh, uh, Pastor Brad, uh, Brad Willoughby back there in the back, especially. Um, huge, huge thanks. Uh, we, we wouldn't be here today without all the hard work that Brad has done. So thank you, Brad. All right. Um, I want you to turn with me uh, this morning to Matthew 16. And uh, we're going to read there a little bit. Um, just a few verses, beginning at verse 13, Matthew 16, 13. I think we'll have it on the screen. Here we go. Uh, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea, Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people, who do people? We got it? No? Ah. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. What about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Yeah, let's pray. Jesus, uh, we pray that you uh, would be glorified here in this place this morning. We pray that, uh, that you would speak to us uh, we know that there are things that you want to say and there are things that we need to hear from you. And so I pray that you would give us ears to hear, hearts to receive, all that you have for us today. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. <clears throat> so in the previous chapter in, in uh, Matthew 15, we read the story where Jesus ministers to a huge crowd of people. Uh, he feeds, uh, it says 4,000 4, uh, men, so if you count women and children, you know, it's a massive, huge group of people, maybe 8,000, maybe as many as 10,000 people that he ministers to. And, uh, and then he and, and the disciples uh, socially distance themselves and, uh, and they, they go away uh, to a different place and, and they just hang out 
just just them for a while and and he talks to them about some things and then they're coming out of this little time of retreat and and they're they move into this region uh, of Caesarea Philippi which is a predominantly Gentile region which which is kind of interesting uh, when you consider what's about to happen um you know, what, what Jesus uh, is about to, the questions he's going to ask and the answers that, that, that Peter will give that identify him as the Messiah. Now, of course, we, we identify him as uh, our Savior. Uh, we, we think like Gentiles. We don't always think like Jewish people, um, unless we are Jewish people, um, but the disciples, all of the disciples are Jews. And they're thinking very Jewish. And, and so they're thinking Messiah. And uh, they're not thinking, you know, Old Testament, New Testament, because the New Testament hasn't been written yet. And so they're, they're thinking, you've got to kind of put yourself in their place. The last place they would expect Jesus to ask them, do, do you think I'm the Messiah? Would be in a Gentile neighborhood. Uh, but that's what he does. And so in verse 13, he asks, who do people say that I am? And, and they give a couple of answers. The first answer that they give is some, some say John the Baptist, which, which is, was a true answer. A lot of people thought that. There, there was kind of a rumor that was floating around, and, and it, it centered around Herod Antipas, who had beheaded John, and he didn't really want to behead John. He, he reluctantly beheaded John because he got himself into a trap. He, he said to this, this girl uh, who was dancing for him, you know, I'll, I'll do whatever you want. And her mom said, ask for John the Baptist's head. And, and he didn't want to do that, but he had to follow through because to keep face. And, and as the king, he had to uh, do what he said he was going to do. And so he had had John the Baptist beheaded and ever since that point had been haunted uh, by that. And he believed that Jesus was actually John the Baptist come back from the dead uh, to make him, to torment him. And so that kind of that rumor spread around uh, the region. Then they said, uh, some of them say Elijah. And Elijah, uh, there were prophecies, there are prophecies in the Old Testament that, that Elijah uh, one like Elijah would be the forerunner to the Messiah. Uh, and so some believe he's not the Messiah, but he's, he's the one that comes before the Messiah. The interesting thing about this is that John the Baptist is actually the fulfillment uh, of the Elijah prophecies. And so you got that going on. And then they say, uh, the third answer they give is, uh, some say just, you know, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And uh, uh, that's an interesting answer. Uh, I, th I think really it's just kind of saying, some people just say you're a prophet. You know, and there, there have been a lot of prophets. Some commentaries believe that they said Jeremiah, Jeremiah in particular because um, he weeped or he wept. And, you know, we have one verse that says Jesus wept. So I guess, I don't know. I, I guess that's the connection that they're, they're making there. But I, I don't know why they said Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Uh, but those are the basic, the three answers that, that the disciples give. They say, you know, who do people say that I am? And so they tell him, these are the people. Uh, these are the different, different theories, the different rumors that are floating around about who you are. And then Jesus asked uh, 
a very pointed question. He, he looks at the disciples and he says, who do you say that I am? And, and Peter professes his faith in Jesus as the Christ. Now, I think we need to realize that this is probably not the first time that the disciples have talked about this. Uh, and, and we also need to see that Peter, Peter is their leader. Uh, he's very vocal and, and he's out front. He is their leader. And I, I don't think, you know, as, as the Father gives this revelation to Peter, it may not have been that the Father gave Peter that revelation right then and right there. He may have given it to him earlier. Uh, and Peter and the d- uh, disciples, there's a good possibility that they've already discussed this. Uh, they've been traveling with Jesus. They have seen unbelievable things. And uh, I have to believe that they have at least posed the question to each other, do, do you think? Could, could he be? Is he the one? And so Peter speaks. And at this point, the main point that we need to grasp, and this is, this is really the point I believe that Jesus is going for, is that it doesn't matter at this point what other people believe, what other people think, or what other people teach. What matters for the disciples is what do you believe. It doesn't matter what other people say about me, what other people think about me. What do you think? What does Peter believe about Jesus is the core of the situation. And so growing up in a Christian family, and going to church all of your life, which that is the story for some of you. And growing up in a Christian family and going to church all of your life can be a great blessing if, if it results in you actually giving your life to Jesus, putting your faith and putting your trust in Jesus and him alone for your salvation. But if your faith is more about what your family believes or has always believed, and not as much about your own commitment and surrender to Jesus as Savior and Lord, you could find yourself actually depending on someone else's faith. And this is the thing that Jesus is driving home to his disciples, is that you can't be distracted or bothered by what other people think, say, or believe. You have to know what you believe. You have to make a decision about me. Uh, according to Alan Hirsch in his book, uh, Forgotten Ways, if, if you were born between 1925 and 1945, I, I won't ask you to raise your hand, but if you were born between 1925 and 1945, there's a 60% chance that you're in church. If you were born between 1946 and 1964, there's a 40% chance that you're in church. If you were born between 1965 and 1983, there's a 20% chance that you're in church. And if you were born after 1984, there's a less than 10% chance 
that you're in church. It could be that one of the reasons that drift has happened is because parents and families have taken people to church. They've taken children to church, but they haven't taken children to Jesus. Uh, It doesn't matter what others think or believe. It matters what you think. It matters what you believe. It matters who you surrender to. So then the next thing that happens is that Jesus uh, calls Simon a rock. Uh, He calls him a Petra. And he says, uh, now now understand Jesus has already called Simon this once before, earlier, uh, right, right really after he first met Peter. And when he first met Simon on the beach and he called him, he, he told him uh, that he would become a rock. And, uh, and so now he's saying to him, uh, you're a rock. He basically changes his name after, after Peter declares this revelation that he's had. Uh, from the Father, Jesus changes Peter's name right there on the spot. And, and this is not an uncommon thing in Scripture. God, God loves to change names. Uh, names in Scripture really speak to a person's identity. And if, if God, is, is, God, is, God is not just good, God is great at everything, he's really great at changing identities. He's really great at changing identities. And so right here, he changes Peter's name. He changes Peter's identity. It's one of his favorite things to do. And obviously, Jesus likes Simon Peter's answer. He likes his answer. And more than that, though, I believe Jesus likes Simon Peter's heart. He he loves his heart, and and he tells him, my father gave you that. You, You didn't come up with it. You didn't figure it out. My father gave you this. Now, Bible scholars go back and forth uh, on, on this verse. And, and some say, you know, what, what does it mean? Jesus says, you know, Peter is the rock. Is, is Peter the rock or is Peter's faith the rock? I mean, how could Jesus say, I'm going to build my church on Peter? Isn't he actually saying, I'm going to build my faith on, on I'm going to build my church on this faith that Peter has? And so some people, you know, they, they have some disagreement. Uh, I, I don't know. It could be either. I, w- I will tell you this. This, this much is clear. Uh, Peter didn't just figure this out. He didn't just figure it out. God gave it to him. And Peter's faith and Peter's declaration are God-given. They're not man-made. He has a revelation. He has a supernatural encounter with a living God. And he says, you're the Christ the son of the living God. And Jesus says, on this rock, on this rock, I'll build my church. And it could be Peter, it could be Peter's faith, it could be the whole idea of supernatural encounter and revelation from the Father, uh, from God. But Jesus says, this is what I'm going to build my church on. Not that, not what people think, not, what, you know, not the rumors and the ideas that are floating around, not the philosophies about me that say he's a good man, even a prophet, but not, you know, none of that. 
but I'm going to build my church on this testimony, this declaration, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus declares war on hell. That's, that's really what he does. He declares war on hell. He says, <clears throat> I'm going to build my church on this rock, and the gates of hell will not prevail against her. I think that too often we tend to think of the church in a defensive posture. Uh, and, and we have this mentality, you know, we, we have to keep the devil out. And, and even most of our thoughts surrounding spiritual warfare, if we're honest, are, are centered on us being attacked, right? And so we think of this defensive posture. We think of being attacked rather than attacking. Um, what we need to understand about this passage of Scripture is that Jesus says, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. Guess what you don't do in war? You don't attack your enemy with a gate. You don't. You attack the enemy's gate. <clears throat> and so what Jesus is saying here is that the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. And my church will be on the offensive. Uh, the gates of hell are not attacking us. They're trying to keep us from coming in and taking what we want. The gates of hell are trying to keep us out. And Jesus is saying, go, go on in. Go in there and get your family. Go in there and get your friends. Go in there and get your coworkers. Go in there and get the nations because they're your inheritance. So just go in there and get what you want, take what you want, and bring it home. That's what Jesus is saying. My first football coach, I was in the eighth grade. So, you know, after rec, rec stuff. So my first, you know, school football team, you know, where you actually had to buy a ticket to go to games. That, that made it official. I was, I was practically professional. And uh, <clears throat> so eighth grade, my first football coach said, if they don't score, we can't lose. You know what my second football coach said? I was in the ninth grade, and he moved in from, from out of town, and he, he coached our, our freshman team. And he said, if we score 50, they have to score 51 to beat us. That was the most fun I ever had playing any team sport. If we score 50, they have to score 51 to beat us. This, this was 1974. You can do the math, figure out how old I am. I'm 61. I'll save you the trouble. This was 1974, and football teams were winning games like 10 to 7, 7 to 6, 6 to 3. We were blowing the fuses on the electric scoreboard. Almost every game that year, we scored like the first four or five times we had the ball before the other team even figured out what we were doing. Because we had a coach who said, hey, let's, let's play offense. Defense is important. Some coaches say, some experts say, defense wins championships. All I can say is offense is fun. <laughs> it's just fun. At, at Pentecost... Peter 
and the other believers who had gathered there were filled with the Holy Spirit and an offensive church was born. An offensive church. Uh, the offensive church is an invading church. Not a, not a defensive church. It's not trying to protect its borders. It's invading enemy territory and taking what it wants. Uh, if... <laughs> Yeah, I, I you know back in the day, you, when you wrote a sermon, you always had a sermon title, and they would put the title in the church bulletin. We don't have a bulletin anymore, so we don't have sermon titles. But if I was going to title this church, this sermon, if I was going to give it a title, it would be "Where in Hell's the Church?" <laughs> uh, a lot of people have worried about the church during COVID. A lot of people uh, worried that, you know, hey, what's COVID going to do to the church? You know, I can't gather. You know, I haven't been able to meet. You know, what's going to happen? Is the church going to die? Is the church going to go away? Is the church going to lose her power? Uh, when Mao Zedong took power in China, he initiated a system to purge religion from their society completely. Uh, the church in China was strong at that time. It, it had been born primarily from Western missionaries, and, and it was about two million strong, about two million believers in China at the time. And, and the, one of the first things that Mao did was he kicked out all of the foreign missionaries and the pastors, and he made all church real estate, all the properties, all the buildings, all the churches that existed, he made government property. And then he killed most of the senior leaders of the church. And the second and third tier leaders uh, were put in prison or killed. And all public meetings, all Christian public meetings were banned. A violation of the ban resulted in either torture or death. Uh, the persecution of the church uh, during uh, this time was one of the cruelest in recorded history. Now, his reign, Mao's uh, reign, ended in the late 70s. If you're familiar with history, you'll remember that in the early 80s, the bamboo curtain, as they call it, came down. And missionaries, foreign missionaries and, and church leaders were allowed back uh, into China. For the first time in, in, in decades. And they came expecting to find a weak and dying remnant from the two million believers of before. And what they found was a church of over 60 million. 60 million. Today, that number is estimated at about 120 million. And they did it without very many Bibles. They did it with no seminary-trained leaders. None, none of their leaders had, were doctors. Hmm. They had no large gatherings. They, they didn't have a band. Oh, I know. I think, I think they relied 
on the keys of the kingdom. And that's the, the next thing that Jesus says in verse 19. He says, the gates of hell will not prevail against you, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom. So what are the keys of the kingdom? What are the keys? What, what are the things that unlock the kingdom of God? I believe that one of the keys to the kingdom is prayer. Jesus was a man of prayer. Jesus loved to pray. Jesus gave so much attention and time to prayer. Uh, he recognized the significance, the power of prayer. And he gave himself to prayer. Jesus taught his disciples to pray. His disciples asked him, please teach us. Teach us how to access heaven. And he taught them how to pray. I believe that an, another key to the kingdom was, is faith. If you look through scripture, you see that Jesus marvels at faith when he finds it. When he finds it. He, he doesn't often find it, apparently. But when he does, he calls attention to it. And he, and he marvels at faith. Now, one of the things that you notice about the faith that Jesus marvels at in scripture is that it's, it's usually doing something. It's, it's usually doing something. It's usually not just thinking. It's actually acting. Uh, another key, another key uh, to the kingdom is, and I, and I believe really the key to everything, uh, is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the promise of the Father. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit unlocks the kingdom of God to the Jews. In Acts chapter 8, the Holy Spirit unlocks the kingdom of God for the Samaritans. And, and in Acts chapter 10, the Holy Spirit unlocks the kingdom for the Gentiles. You know what's interesting about those three things? If you kind of go back to what we said about Peter, you know, how could, you know, is, is, is it Peter? Is Jesus building his church on Peter? Well, ironically, Peter is the one that God uses in each of those situations. Acts 2, Peter. Acts 8, Peter. Acts 10, Peter. Holy Spirit unlocks the kingdom for the Jews, for the Samaritans, and for the Gentiles. Now here, it's important though. It's important. I mean, that's just something interesting to look at. What's important is for us to note that in verse 18, the latter part, it indicates that the keys of the kingdom will not be given to one person. The keys of the kingdom will be given to to the church, right? The staff, we might have the keys to this building, but all of us have the keys to the kingdom, right? We have the keys to the kingdom. Now, I'm, I'm glad that we're here. I, I am. I, I like church. It's, it, it's helpful in my job to like church. And uh, I, I do, I like church. I, I even liked church before, um, before I was a pastor, I liked church. Um, I liked church as a kid before I was even a Christian. So that's kind of, kind of weird, but I did. Um, I'm glad that we're here. I think gathering is important 
if. I think gathering is important if it helps equip us for the mission. If it helps equip us for the mission. Uh, Right now, right now, in our in, in the world, in our country, and, and narrow it down, in our region, in, in West Cobb, if you want to say in the northwest corridor of Atlanta, of Metro Atlanta, right now, people are looking for something. They're looking for something to believe in. They're looking for something that they can trust. They're looking for something really that they can put their faith in. They may not use that language, but that's really what they're looking for. They're looking for something stable that will sustain them in the midst of trouble. And we happen to know that the something that they're looking for is actually a someone. And that his name is Jesus and that he lives in us. And so, <laughs> my wife's gonna die when I say this. I wanna say to all of you, and I, I've never wanted to, I promise you, I've never wanted to say this to you before. But I do wanna say it to you now. And you can cover your children's ears or whatever, but it's time for the church to go to hell. Now, I'm I'm a little nervous because that's on Facebook Live, and there are people who don't know me who are seeing that. Y'all know me; you know I'm just have a weird sense of humor. But understand what I'm saying. Listen. If you have prayed for COVID to end so that you could come back here and feel safe, this ain't time to feel safe. I mean, safety's fine. Peace is good. But we're at war. We're at war and people are dying and they need us. They need us. And so when we gather, understand that the reason we do is not so we can insulate ourselves and hide from the world. It's so that we can be equipped and empowered to go to the world. Because we have been given the keys. And the gates of hell cannot stand against us. And we have been given permission. We have been given permission by God to go in and get what we want and bring it home. And so if you have family, if you have friends, if you have neighbors, if you have coworkers, strangers, nations, it's time. It's time to put some points on the scoreboard. Not play just defense all the time. It's time for the church to be offensive. <laughs> the right, the right kind of, of, of offensive, not not the other kind. All right.
I'm going to pray, and, uh, and we'll go from there, figure out what's next.